big-hearted generosity. Doesn't that just sound good? Doesn't that just make you say, that, I want to be that, right? I want to have a big heart and be gracious and generous in the way I live and approach life. And certainly on this Sunday where we, we celebrate uh, the, the completion of Ignite and the paying off of that debt, we want to celebrate big-hearted generosity in the life of this church. So again, thank you for your gracious and sacrificial gifts that allowed us to do that. And thank you to those that give big-heartedly through your tithes and through your offerings every week and every month to support the, the life and ministries of this church. And yet it's important for us at times to come back and to reflect on these principles, on the truths and disciplines of, of giving. As Jay reminded us earlier, and, and, and uh, Joe, giving is a discipline. Giving is a practice. And if we want to, to, to grow and mature to that place in our lives where we are big-hearted, generous people, then we must understand that we must start, we must start with a discipline and practice of that. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And certainly what Paul is describing here is he's writing to the church of Corinth. He's praising them for their big-hearted generosity. And so we're going to start with the vision in mind, the picture in mind of, of where we'd like to go. And then we'll take a step back and begin that journey and process so that we can embrace and grow and mature in these same principles. Paul writes to the church at Corinth in verse 6, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, He scattered abroad, He gave to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. Now, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only fully supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing through many thanksgivings to God. Because of the proof given by this ministry, they, they will glorify God for your obedience to your confession of the gospel of Christ and for the liberality of your contribution to them and to all. While they also, by prayer on your behalf, yearn for you because of the surpassing grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for His indescribable gift. Now it's interesting that Paul begins this section of, of praising and of celebrating the, the big-hearted generosity of the church at Corinth by offering some principles or some proverbs of giving. 
And I just want to state those very briefly and succinctly. The first proverb is that you reap what you sow. And Paul encourages us, if we want to embrace big-hearted generosity, that we need to be a people who sow bountifully. In fact, some would say, as they would reflect on this passage, that as Christians and followers of Christ, we are to sow all that we can. Because that which we sow today brings the harvest tomorrow. A harvest to meet your needs, certainly, but also a harvest to provide more seed and more fruit to share and to give and to bless others. Leo the Great was the 5th century pope, and he said this, he said, he will have the greatest gain if he has saved the smallest amount for himself. So as we learn to sow and to give to others and keep what we need, but invest and sow in others, what we discover is that we have the greatest gain. The second proverb that that Paul talks about here is that we are to be a people who give cheerfully. In fact, Paul really searches the attitude of the heart in this passage when he says that we're to give cheerfully and not to give begrudgingly or under compulsion. The Lord desires our heart and our attitude to be right, to give cheerfully and willingly and to give with celebration in our heart, in our lives. A related a corollary proverb or truth to this is that the farmer who is stingy in his sowing cheats himself in his harvest. How are you sowing are, and are you giving? Are you sowing in a cheerful manner? Now certainly I want, to, want us to understand that there's different seasons of life. And for all of us, there's seasons of life where our harvest is more bountiful. And, and I hear from, from some who at times say, you know, Brother Wade, I'm in a season of life where I just don't have the resources to give as abundantly and graciously as I, I've done before. I, I'm retired now, and I just don't have the income, and I, I can't give as much as I used to be able to give. Or we, we have bills, we're paying tuition, I can relate to that. And we just don't have the resources to give as graciously and as abundantly as we would, would desire to. Yet Paul would say to us that we should give cheerfully, not begrudgingly or under compulsion. You see, big-hearted generosity is about our heart, not about our bank account. Right? And we are called to give cheerfully and abundantly at whatever season of life that we find ourselves in. And the third principle that Paul reminds us of is that grace abounds abundantly. Our reluctance to sow and to give generously, our reluctance to sow with big-hearted generosity sometimes reveals a struggle on our own part of trust and dependence upon God. And so here Paul says to us that God's sufficiency abounds for all. And that God's gracious nature meets and fulfills all our need. In fact, Paul goes on to say that God 
supplies our needs so that why? So that we can give abundantly for every good deed that may come along. Big-hearted generosity is, is founded, I think, in these three Proverbs to so bountifully, to ch- give cheerfully, and to understand that as we do those things, that God's grace abounds abundantly as we step out in faith. As we continue in this passage, we see that big-hearted generosity produces thanksgiving to God. Verses nine, excuse me, 10 through 11 reflect that, that the recipients of this generosity give thanks to God. When you give above and beyond, when you give graciously and generously, it produces a response of thanksgiving in those that receive. As there have been an occasion for, for me to receive, and, and from some of you, a, a, a gift or an encouragement, I go, wow, that is so gracious, that is so incredible, that, that my first thought is, wow, God, thank you. The, the praise goes first to God, wow. And then as we thank God and praise God, we, we give thanks that God uses us as his vessel to share and to give and to sow seed in. So big-hearted generosity produces thanksgiving to God. It produces thanksgiving to God because we see as we sow generously that the harvest is plentiful. And again, that we would see in the harvest, the, the teaching of Scripture is not, wow, look at that great harvest. I'm going to be able to build a bigger barns so that I can have more and more and more. No, the, the principle of sowing and reaping in Scripture so, is that as God blesses and brings the abundant harvest, it resources us more and more to give generously and graciously, big-heartedly, if you would. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7, in his previous letter to the church at Corinth, Paul reminds the church that it is God who gives the increase. It is God who gives the growth. It is God who brings the harvest, certainly after we have sown and after we have plowed, after we have planted and watered and weeded. But there's that element of faith. There's that element of God's place and role in the harvest. So that Paul comes back and says, I've done my part, but I know that God is the one that ultimately brings the harvest into our lives. Paul continues on in verses 13 through 15. He says, all these things bring thanks to God. In fact, as he summarizes in verse 15, he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift, his gift of Christ, But in the process, in those previous verses, 12 through 15, he continues to outline what we're calling big-hearted generosity. Big-hearted generosity is fully supplying the needs of the saints. You see, there's the church in Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem is struggling. The church in Jerusalem has found itself in, in poverty And the people there are are struggling just to make ends meet and just to, to carry on with life and there's great need. And the church at Corinth has heard of this great need. And they have taken an offering and they have given that offering to the church at Jerusalem. And look at what Paul says. Because of your big hearted generosity, you have fully supplied, God through you has fully supplied the needs of the of the saints. Thanks be to God. Paul continues. 
But your big-hearted generosity is also a testimony that you are obediently living out the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you, did you gather that? Their big-hearted generosity, the offerings that they've given to the church at Jerusalem, are a witness and testimony that they are being faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Their confession of faith is in line, is congruent with the action of their heart and the liberality of their heart as they have given. There's no sense of hypocrisy among the, ch- the church at Corinth because they have professed this, this grace in Jesus Christ and their lives and their actions have reflected that grace if they have given graciously and liberally. Thanks be to God. Paul says to the church at Corinth, finally, your big-hearted generosity is a testimony and inspiration to all who experience and witness its impact. Did you catch that in the last part of that, I think it's verse 15, where he says that the saints there are praying for you? And not not just that the saints there are praying for you, the saints in Jerusalem are yearning for you. You see, the church at Corinth has reached out in this gracious generosity. And those who have been recipients of that gracious generosity are those that are being prayed for. And the connection and the fellowship of the saints, the fellowship of the body of Christ, is being uplifted and strengthened and encouraged as the church at Jerusalem is yearning for the fellowship of the saints with those that are in Corinth. And Paul would say, your generosity is overflowing to many in thanksgiving to God. And you know what? It's it's not just the people at the church of Jerusalem that are celebrating this. It's it's their friends. It's the people around them. It's the people that know these are poor people, yet, wow, they have received a gift. They have received an offering. And even those that aren't a part of the church are marveling at the generosity and the grace in which they've seen among the fellowship of Christian. And so Paul says, as he understands the witness and testimony of this big-hearted generosity, Paul steps back and says, wow, thanks be to God. And what about you? Have you gotten to that place where, where you, you say, yeah, we're, we're making strides and we're practicing big-hearted generosity? You know, as we talked about earlier, there are, are some wonderful, wonderful saints in our, in our church and congregation that practice big-hearted generosity, not just to the church, but, but in all the things that they're involved in in our community. They give of themselves, they give of their resources, of their time, and they're gracious and generous people, and people are, are thanking God for them. Have you begun that journey of, of moving that way? Or would you say, oh, Brother Wade, the desire of my heart is that I would, would be that person of, of big-hearted generosity, but I just find myself in such a struggle right now. I'm struggling financially. I'm struggling with time. I'm just in a, in a difficult place of life with, with health. And, oh, I want to I begin that journey if I can. Let me focus and let me, let me offer a suggestion a suggestion of where to begin. 
as you would desire to begin to practice big-hearted generosity through your, your time and particularly through your financial resources. Kelly, can I get you to throw me that basketball for a minute? I was going to let Wilson do it, but I decided I better not take that chance with, with grape juice over here. And I'm not going to do my ball twirling trick either, just in case. So, um, But anyway, I had a great time this year coaching Upward. I've mentioned that several times. And I love the Upward basketball. Isn't this great? Now, if you go to the NBA, if you go to high school or college, you're not going to find basketballs that, that have hands on them, right? This is a basketball that starts with the beginning, with the basics. And so we had my little team, and, and we started the season, and we'd all get in a circle, and we would just practice ten times. One, two. And then we'd go down a little lower, and then we'd go down like this. Ten times. And it was amazing to watch how far the balls would bounce because you've got six boys right here and the ball's going everywhere and the balls are bouncing off of each other and going. But you know what? If, if we're going to learn to play basketball, we have to start with the basics. We have to start with the fundamentals. Like with shooting, these hands are perfect. You know, the, the guys that, that come, they want to shoot with two hands. But if you want to learn how to shoot a basketball, a jump shot, you've got to follow the, the, the hands here, Right? And so you want to learn how to shoot like this so you can release and so you can get that finger roll. It's the basics. It's the fundamentals. And if you want to learn to play basketball and, and to play basketball in school and in college and even go on to the NBA, you've got to learn to start with the basics. Russell Westbrook doesn't have hands on his ball anymore, right? He doesn't sit around and go one, two, three, four, five, right? Because he's mastered the basics. And now, anyone who knows anything about basketball knows he does some incredible, magical things with a basketball. When he's dribbling, when he's shooting, when he's passing. It's all because he started with the fundamentals and basics. Kelly, I'm going to trust you, okay? So, so what, does that, what does that mean for us? Well, what if we had a place to begin with our generosity? Let me suggest, if you'd allow me to, that the law in the Old Testament provides a beginning point for generosity. Now think about that for a minute. The law provides a beginning point for big-hearted generosity. Now certainly the law is limited, and certainly the law is incomplete, but it does serve as a starting point for much of life, the Ten Commandments. It's a starting point. Ten Commandments on rock is a starting point. The prophet Jeremiah says the goal is to write them on your heart, right? And then Jesus takes it a step further and he says, you know what, it's not about not killing someone physically, although it still is, but it's understanding that it's also about not killing people with your words and your attitudes. But you start with that beginning point. And what if we understood that Malachi 3.10 and the teachings in Scripture are that beginning point of learning big-hearted generosity where you start with the tithe and the storehouse. If you would, I'll, I'll just flip back there for a minute and read this, this passage. And, and, and this is the last book of the Bible, so it's not like, hey guys, at the last page, we better put this in there. No, tithing is demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. But here's what the prophet Malachi says. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, 
And test me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing until it overflows. Isn't that, isn't that powerful? Isn't that beautiful? Isn't there a hint and a, a, a pre, a foreshadowing of this big-hearted generosity, even here in the instruction on tithing? So let's look at this, this teaching a little bit more. You see, I, I believe the tithe is that beginning point. It's the beginning point of big-hearted generosity. And as you're learning the basics and the foundations, what does the tithe teach you, teach you? The tithe teaches us that our harvest always comes from God. Yes, we plant, and yes, we plow, and yes, we water, and yes, we pull the weeds. But ultimately, the harvest always comes from God. And that harvest can be in the form of crops, it can be in the form of a paycheck, it can be in the form of all kinds of different things, but that harvest comes from God. The tithe was brought to the storehouse. 10% of the tithe, it didn't mean that this is my 10% and, and God, I get the rest, but what it meant is that, God, I'm acknowledging that all of the, the, the harvest is yours. So I'm bringing this 10% to acknowledge that everything that I have is yours. And that you have met my need through the harvest. And I symbolize that by bringing 10%. And the Old Testament is very specific about bringing that tithe to the storehouse. In the Old Testament times, it would be to a temple, maybe to a synagogue, specifically to the priests. And what was the purpose of that tithe in the Old Testament? It, it seems to me that there's three major purposes of the tithe in the Old Testament. Number one was to take care of the priests. Take care of the Levites. Why? Because they weren't given any land. They weren't given the resources to be able to, to, to produce a harvest. And so that was God's provision for them is through the, the tithe. But the priests didn't get to keep it all because part of the harvest was brought in to care for the poor. And so as people would bring their crops in and their tithe in, there was resource for the, 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 the people of God to be able to help and come alongside the poor to take care of them. And there's a third thing that I think as you, you read through the Old Testament and you see the, the teaching of the tithe, what the tithe was brought to the storehouse for, and that was for the people of God. Many times the tithe was brought in, the first fruits were brought in, a, a portion of the tithe was brought in during the, the feast seasons, the festival seasons. And so the, the people of God would, would gather, they would bring their tithes, and they would celebrate as the people of God, the harvest of God, through their, their feasts and through their celebrations that they would share together as a people. And so as we transition from the Old into the New Testament, our tradition and our history says that in the, the New Testament context, the storehouse has become the church. I think as you look at the way churches spend their money, it looks a lot the same. In the New Testament, as we bring our storehouses to the church, it helps to fund and provide the resources for our staff, our supportive staff, our, our ministry staff. But for our ministers in particular, it allows us to focus specifically on the ministry, on the, the, the teaching and the priestly role that God has called before us so that we, we, can, we don't have to be bivocational, so that we can focus on the call of God. Well, bringing the tithe of the storehouse in the New Testament also helps us and enables us to reach out to the poor and to care for the poor and to minister to those in need. 
And then certainly it helps us to care for each other, to celebrate with each other, to, to encourage and to exhort each other, to, to help each other grow in our own spiritual formation. And so as we talk about bringing our, our tithe to the storehouse, there's a, there's a connection, I think, between the, the Old and New Testament practice. But what we need to understand, as we suggested earlier, that the tithe is just a beginning point. It's not the ending point. It's the basics. It's the fundamentals. When we tithe, we are practicing those basics and those fundamentals of generosity. But big-hearted generosity is the goal. Big-hearted generosity is that which fulfills the tithe. Big-hearted generosity takes us beyond the tithe. And this is where I want to make another shift for is because what we need to remember is that grace fulfills the law. Grace never underperforms the law. Grace always takes you beyond the law. We've cited examples in in Matthew chapter 5. In and through Jesus, we are not people of the law. Rather, we are people of grace. And while we begin with the tithe, we mature. We practice big-hearted generosity through the church and through our community. We begin with that basketball, learning how to 10 times, if I can do 10 times without messing up, and then if I can do 10 times without messing up, I'm going to grow and mature in that. And that's what that tithe is, is it's that way to begin to instruct and teach us to shape and to mold our heart, to give us a, a perspective that all that we have is God's. And God desires us to be big-hearted and generous and gracious people as we give to His church and His work and His people and as we give and live in the communities in which we live. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5. He said, Do not think that I came to abolish the law and the prophets. I did not come to abolish them, but rather to fulfill them. You see, the word fulfill means to bring to fruition its complete meaning. Grace unveils and brings the law to its complete meaning. We live beyond grace and in the realm of the Spirit. Excuse me, we live beyond the law and we live in the realm of grace. And the realm of grace is that which is led by the Spirit of God in all things. So as we ponder this truth and and giving and tithing being an important example for us, certainly, now we approach the Lord's table. And what we see is that the Lord's table, the Lord's supper, is in many ways a fulfillment of the Passover meal from the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus says in 1 Corinthians 11.25, he says this. He says, "Ah, this cup that we're about to drink is there sharing in the... Lord's, they're sharing in the Passover together. The Lord says, this cup, the third cup, is the new cup. It's the new cup of the covenant in my blood. You see, Jesus fulfills the Old Testament through the Passover when he declares that from that point forward, what he's about to experience is that he is now the cup of redemption. He has fulfilled the Passover Because Jesus is the Redeemer, the Redeemer. Hebrews puts it this way. The book of Hebrews says, It's not the blood of bulls and goats that takes away sin, 
But rather in Hebrews 10.10 it says this, We have been sanctified, we have been redeemed through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. You see, on the cross, Jesus Christ demonstrates the ultimate act of big-hearted generosity. And because Jesus has offered that example and witness to us, that we too can begin to grow and mature, not just in our finances, but in all of our life, being a people who practice and live out big-hearted generosity. This is the call of Christ to each of us today. This is the call that we reflect on and we celebrate and proclaim as we share His Supper together. Let's pray.